0: The solemn tones of an old cathedral clock have announced midnight. The air is thick and heavy. A strange, death-like stillness pervades all nature. Like the ominous calm which precedes some more than usually terrific outbreak of the elements, they seem to have paused even in their ordinary fluctuations, to gather a terrific strength for the great effort. A faint peal of thunder now comes from far off, Like a signal gun for the battle of the winds to begin, it appeared to awaken them from their lethargy, and one awful warring hurricane swept over a whole city, producing more devastation in the four or five minutes it lasted than would a half-century of ordinary phenomena. It was as if some giant had blown upon some toy town and scattered many of the buildings before the hot blast of his terrific breath, for as suddenly as that blast of wind had come did it cease— "'and all was as still and calm as before. "'Sleepers awakened and thought that what they had heard "'must be the confused chimera of a dream. "'They trembled and turned to sleep again. "'All is still. Still is the very grave. "'Not a sound breaks the magic of repose. "'What is that? "'A strange pattering noise, as of a million fairy feet? "'It is hail. Yes, a hailstorm has burst over the city. "'Leaves are dashed from the trees.' Mingled with small boughs. Windows that lie most opposed to the direct fury of the pelting particles of ice are broken, and the rapt repose that before was so remarkable in its intensity is exchanged for a noise which, in its accumulation, drowns every cry of surprise or consternation which here and there arose from persons who found their houses invaded by the storm.
1: This is Dark and Stormy Nights, the podcast where we read the first page, and only the first page, of every novel ever written. I'm your host, Vin Lebate,
0: And I'm your other host, Ben
1: Blatberg. And tonight we're talking about the first page of Varney the Vampire, aka The Feast of Blood, by James Malcolm Reimer and Thomas Peckett Prest, published serially between 1845 and 1847. And our guest tonight is Grady Hendrix. Hi, Grady. Hey, how's it going? Welcome. Going pretty good. So uh, are you familiar with this,
2: with this title? Yeah, I've read Varney. Huh? Both books. Uh,
0: for fun or
2: research? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I did a vampire book and I was doing the show and then a vampire podcast for it. So yeah, no, I read Varney <laughs> just to sort of be one of the cool kids who's read Varney. Not many people have. It's a very long, very boring uh, book. Yeah, the uh, the hazards of serial publication. Yeah, well, it's a very repetitive book, right? I mean, they were getting paid by the word, so I think the the goal was to stretch as much as possible.
0: Well, yeah, uh, yeah, repetitive. Uh, that gets us <laughs> to the, the the text here pretty quickly. Um, but uh, overall, did you like it, or was it more of a like respect for its position as uh, the originator of some of vampire tropes that we have today.
2: I'm not sure anyone likes Varney. <laughs> um, you know, I found one guy who also read it online, and they didn't particularly love Varney. I mean, it's a very convoluted book. Uh, and um, did I like... I liked having read it. Um, and and there are parts of it that are fun. I mean, there's, there's some really stupid parts. But the, the problem with Varney is it's so... Uh, it's made up of a lot of incidents and not a whole lot of forward motion. So, and and there's lots of people playing tricks. Like there's a great moment early on where Flora, I believe, who's the main woman who's about to get her neck sucked on, her husband rejects her. And he's like, why would I take as a wife a woman who is prone to vampire attacks as if it was epilepsy (laughs) or something, you know, something that, that was a medical condition and, um, but then, like three chapters later, it turns out to all be a trick, and he doesn't love her any less. They just wanted Varney to think he was rejecting her, so mm. you know it's it's sort of got all the worst parts of um of of nineteenth century gothic literature and and none of the really good parts it's goofy and and kind of campy at times, but you know every conversation is five times longer than it needs to be everyone repeats things they've done in the previous chapter and part of that serial publication you know the reader needs to know what's happened before but part of it was just padding a lot of padding so um but you know it's Varney. it's a it's a historical artifact i mean mm-hmm. does anyone read the bible for fun but you know it's <laughs> sort of good to good to know what the the cultural touchstones are
0: oh well, yeah i mean you, you need to know of course where the 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 trope of the uh uh, uh, fangs uh, on the neck. Yeah.
2: Tusk-like, I think. Barney has terrible d- dental conditions.
0: <laughs> hmm. Yeah.
2: It's funny, like uh, some of the the hazards and
1: pitfalls of serial fiction you were describing really sound like a lot of, like, a very certain class of of television at this point. Like the extremely unnecessary <laughs> fake-out that you find out about two episodes <laughs> later, the rehashing upon rehashing...
0: Right, right. This could have been six episodes.
2: Mm, right. Um, oh, well, that's also what you saw in soap operas for years and years, you know, uh, the traditional soap operas like The Guiding Light and As the World Turns and stuff. You know, n- forward progress was very, very, very slow. And there was lots of repetition because people weren't really, you know, they were kind of watching with one eye. And I think that's the case with with serial fiction like this. People were, were reading it for the overall effect, not for the details.
0: Mm-hmm. God, someone must have done some work on, like, the 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 legacy of uh, the gothic in soap opera, right? That that has to exist as, like, at least a blog post somewhere.
2: Well, I think lots of people have. I mean, just look at Dark Shadows, right? Like, a gothic soap opera. So I think there's a lot of spillover between the two.
0: Yeah. I like that, turning the subtext into text. Uh, right. Mm. Yeah. Should we uh, jump into this? Well, also just uh, table setting. Do you know anything about the authors? No, and
2: there's some debate if they're even the real authors. I think they are, and people seem to be pretty agreed they are. But I think there's still some debate. You know, it's still open to who exactly wrote Varney. Reimer and is is the the number one suspect, but I'm not sure there's ever been an edition published under his name until recently. Yeah, even the
1: the Wikipedia article describes it as being variously attributed to Reimer and Prest.
2: Yeah, and it's also very possible, I mean, you know, that these guys wrote parts of it and other people filled in other parts, you know. It is something that would explain the sort of uh, uh, incidental nature of it, that different ghostwriters bringing their own particular interests worked on it at different times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that even is a tradition
1: that continues to this day with a lot of long-running series.
2: Yeah, although now it's... um, A lot of places use a house name, you know, or for a long Mm. time used a house name like like uh, Peter Saxon was a house name for a long time in the 60s and 70s for for horror and pulp in the UK. Um, And I'm not sure the idea of authorship was quite the same in the 19th century as it is now. Like now you want to know it comes from one person, even if the person is a is a pen name or a house name. Mm. I think in the 19th century, uh, a lot of novels were published anonymously. Yeah, particularly. uh
1: essentially work for hire like this sort of serialized fiction pay by the word type stuff
0: right yeah well and certainly certainly earlier uh in the 19th century you know like jane austen's first works are you know by a lady yeah uh or attributed to uh, such uh uh i did just find another work uh, attributed to Prest uh called the hebrew maiden or the lost diamond uh hmm. and i feel like that that's one that we will we'll, we'll want to cover in the future or <laughs> never touch uh uh, the, the, joys of the 19th century or any time really. Hmm. Also the name Varney, I don't know. Uh, is it because it, it recalls, uh, um, uh, who, who was the actor who did Ernest? Jim Varney. Yeah. Is that the, like, for some reason, I, I think every time this book has come up, I've always thought of it as like kind of comic. And I think just because of the name, but of course that's, uh, that's me projecting back. I wonder what other great literary Varneys there were. Not a lot.
2: Yeah, and you know, he's supposed to be Eastern European in this, so mm. I don't know if that was a common British name that he's using as an alias or his origin. I can't remember what it is with his name. I don't think they ever make a big deal out of it. Um, so yeah, I don't know if it was chosen for his exoticism or its familiarity. <laughs>
0: hmm. Or the, the repetition of Varney and vampire. Right. Yeah, it might have just been alliteration.
1: Although it is very interesting to always see it just opposed against the second title, The Feast of Blood.
0: Yeah, I haven't, you know, I I uh studied 19th century mostly American literature and I I I'm really not familiar with a lot of these uh, penny dreadfuls. Like I I I've read a lot more like forgotten American dime novels. Uh
2: Right. Yeah, I mean, this was a uh, this was around I'm trying to think I mean, there were the Penny Dreadfuls, and there were also, this was the time when the Newgate calendar was really popular. Uh, So there were lots of sort of true crime pamphlets circulating as well. Or Should we uh, get into the text here?
1: Let's do. um, Actually, as we start, um, it's not exactly the first line, but there's a little epigraph at the beginning. How the graves give up their dead, and how the night air hideous grows with shrieks. It's not credited. Is that... Just like flavor text or are we supposed to think that's from something? Does anyone recognize that?
2: I don't recognize it. Um, and it's a pretty common vampire trope at the time. Um, the idea of mandication that if you went to a graveyard that was plagued by vampirism, uh, you if you were quiet, you could hear dead people groaning and shrieking and chewing their shrouds, which was known as mandication. Mm. So that was an indication that there were vampires at work.
1: That's really interesting. But our actual first line, the solemn tones of an old cathedral clock have announced midnight. The air is thick and heavy. A strange death-like stillness pervades all nature. and this is this is a very tone forward page, I would say, in that that is most of what is going on on this page.
0: Yeah, just like that that epigraph, like uh th- this page really just wants you to know that like there's death around here.
2: Hmm.
0: And it's it's so like, you know, we start with that symbol of time itself, right? The solemn tones of an old cathedral clock. But then we very quickly get into all of nature by the end of that paragraph, uh, which or excuse me, by the end of the sentence. Uh, and then pretty much this whole page is just nature. It's just the storm. Right. Mm-hmm. And as we describe a- a- as we've mentioned, like uh, it's kind of repetitive, like it's a description of the storm and then like another description through metaphor. You know, as if some giant had blown upon some toy town, yeah i mean this
2: is this is this is all pretty uh faux Dickens mm. all all the as if a giant you know all this figurative language, all this heavy imagery, all this sort of like you know giants and toy towns and the breath and fairy feet and all that I mean that is and it's not just Dickens, I mean Dickens was a particularly good practitioner of it, but it's very very nineteenth century early Victorian. Uh, scene setting stuff, but Dickens was certainly probably the best purveyor of this kind of thing.
0: Yeah, I, I can't recall which uh, where I read this or what what teacher pointed out that like a lot of the like uh, old original or the the most popular gothics, the ones that really set the tone, like Anne Radcliffe's. Like, there is a lot of description of the, the scenery. Like, it it almost serves a little bit as like a travelogue to like parts of Italy where. Or, or France, where these Gothic uh, castles are always located. Um, and, like, that was some of the appeal. Like, it's not just like, oh, this is going to frighten you. But, like, also, like, we're going to describe at length the scene that you might not otherwise see. This is, I mean, not that. It's, it's a storm. Uh, anyone might, might might see a storm. But, like, I, I think that that trope or that tendency is there. Also, <laughs> as we keep mentioning, uh, Paid, paid by the word hmm. or paid by the line, like there's going to be uh, a lot of this probably.
2: Yeah, but also I think there's a I mean, it's a little bit of what you were just saying. Um, you know, now we substitute psychology for landscape um, and physiognomy. Uh, and I think in the 19th century, you know, there wasn't so much this idea of interior psychology, right we weren't we weren't going to show i mean we were authors were in in some way, but this idea of talking about the subconscious and hidden motivations and all this stuff played a far second to most readers who are more familiar with landscape because that's how people travel. like you didn't go anywhere fast. You wanted to go from Liverpool to London. you're gonna walk or ride in a carriage or horse every step, every foot of that way. Um, There's no speed up, slow down. So landscape was often what substituted for psychology. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see it a lot in early true crime pamphlets, especially American ones. And a lot of the early true crime American books that were getting published in the 19th century, where there were these like meticulous, a lot of them were published regionally. And there was this meticulous attention to You know, at this o'clock, he walked to this corner and turned Uh. north and proceeded three doors. You know, this really, because that was an area that was familiar to the reader. It put them, instead of putting them inside the character by saying, you know, his brow was fevered, his heart was panting. He had an enormous boner that felt like all the blood rushing to his Mm. groin. Like, you were, you know, not, you weren't inside the person. You were inside the landscape, feeling it and seeing it. So I think this kind of like, oh, this is going to be a violent story. Um, And the fact that everyone's asleep when it begins, you know, sleep is uh, the time when when unreason prevails. Right. When when fantastic and grotesque things can happen uh, in the middle of the night while you're not quite sure if you're dreaming or awake. It's also the time
1: when you're the most vulnerable.
2: Right. And Varney is the first time people get attacked in their sleep. Uh, by a vampire i mean it's really the beginning of that 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 what became a tired old trope of a vampire coming in the window and assaulting sleeping maidens like this is really
0: where it began it's funny that uh i, I don't know how varney is uh characterized uh you know i usually i mean vampires are like kind of uh, anti-jesus figures right they they take life instead of giving life they uh uh also foreign. There's a lot of that. Um, but as like a force of nature, it's curious that here we have the storm like breaking in people's windows and uh, disturbing their sleep.
2: Yeah, but I think that's, that's the storm as a stand-in for Varney, right? Mm-hmm. And any minute he's going to be breaking in their windows and disturbing their sleep.
0: Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess my question then is, is is Varney, like in Dracula, which I haven't read in years, so there's that, uh, like Dracula is part of a long line of like British invasions of the the foreign mm-hmm. right like um the the Battle of Dorking, sure, you know, or uh yeah, even yeah, war of the worlds, right uh, same same path uh, essentially, um and they are they're they're not like Dracula is not a force of nature exactly, like like he's associated with like a lot of natural things, but like he is he is something that can be beaten back, right, as opposed to some sort of like romantic um sublime sense of nature as like a thing that like happens to you or that you stand in front of and are awed by. Like, is, is Varney, I guess, this this goes against the premise of our podcast where we just read the first page uh, and don't know anything about the book. But, like, I, I wonder, reading this, if Varney is going to be, like, just a force of nature that you, at most, can, like, build a wall against and hope it, it holds, or...
2: Well, Varney, one of the interesting things about Varney is... One is he doesn't shut up. He talks an awful (laughs) lot. Um, But two is that Varney gets shot and falls out of windows a a large number of times, like sort of a surprising number of times um, Varney will be shot and fall out of a window. Um, But as soon as Moonlight touches him, he's restored uh, to his rude vigor. Um, And ultimately, even though Varney is fought in a duel he stabbed he shot he's lynched i think at one point i think he's executed at another point um ultimately he gets in the moonlight and he's fine again and the only way he can truly be destroyed is by himself he has to commit suicide which he does by throwing himself into mount vesuvius at the end Hmm. so yeah he he can be beaten back but um but uh he he can't be destroyed unless it's by his own hand And that's never made explicit, but that's sort of the, the, the way the text goes.
0: Yeah. I wonder if that like was planned or, I mean, probably not. Right. That's the, just like, it's like, (laughs) it's like, let's, let's have him shot. Like, oh, but you know, we, we need him for the next episode. Like, yeah, hmm.
2: well, and it's, um, and there's also the thing where this is a, a very proto-staking book because staking was usually reserved for, I think, suicides at this time and blasphemers. Um, and, and people were still staked, but they were staked in the grave. And vampires were staked, but they were staked to hold them in place. So, um, and, and that's folklore vampires. So Varney gets staked a few times, but it's just to hold him to the ground while they 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 saw off his head, want to saw off his head or mm-hmm. burn him or whatever.
0: Also, I, I I can't recall exactly, but I feel like like throwing yourself into Vesuvius. That uh, again, like with this description of this this storm, like I'm feeling kind of like, uh, like so th- these guys are like penny dreadful pulp writers of their time, but they're clearly drawing from like the romantic tradition. Uh
2: oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I think Varney is definitely a romantic hero, anti Uh, you know, he's he's right in there with uh you know, that, that destructive demon lover that you see in Heathcliff and people like that. And despite having tusk-like teeth, he is quite appealing
0: to the ladies. That said, also, your, your, your description of him falling out of windows, like really makes me wish we had uh, Jim Varney here for like Ernest as a vampire. movie. Mm, Right. Uh, Oh,
1: hmm. I'm actually surprised that didn't happen. Yeah. Although, you know, taken too soon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I just, I was just at the library today. Uh and I was I I I almost took out uh the, the fearless vampire hunters. Mm, uh, yeah, the Polanski. Yeah. Which which I, I mostly recall as the one where there's a Jewish vampire and someone tries to wore them off with a cross and he's like, Boy, like you've got the wrong vampire. <laughs> that's that's what I recall of that. But finally someone did that in a movie. I I've been waiting all my life for that. And it happened before I was born, but whatever. Um <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, I know we're jumping around the text a lot uh, and kind of speaking in, in general. Um, but, well, so Vin. Yes. This is your first time reading this. You haven't read this book. It is. Yes. Um, did you, like, were you pulled through by this or was this uh, molasses?
1: I I went in and out a bit. Like, I'm not averse to an extended description, particularly of of a weather event. And, you know, it's always tricky to judge the literary standards of another time and also of like a different classification like particularly like uh serialized penny dreadful but it is like there's a lot of tense shifting on this page that doesn't seem particularly purposeful uh that pulled me out fairly often even when i was getting into like The intensity towards the end of the page of the hailstorm. Yeah. Like, like we start out with the solemn tones of an old cathedral clock have announced midnight. The air is heavy. And then later on, we're like sleepers awakened past tense.
2: Yeah, it's it's very it's very soft writing. I mean, everything feels very passive. Everything's qualified. Um, more than usually terrific outbreak of the elements you know mm-hmm. everything's sort of like it It's now comes everything seems it's 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 very soft writing
0: it's very dreamy mm-hmm. it is interesting how like even in this one page not only do like uh not exactly events recur but like like there's a big a big gust of wind and then it's ca- like it's calm and then there's wind and then it's calm and then it's, there's hail mm-hmm. Uh, And even things getting described more than one time, like has a sort of repetitive, like it does have that. I I think dreamy is uh, an interesting word here. Like there is something unreal here. Part of that, I think for me is also uh, something that you were kind of touching on Grady in that we get a lot of uh, weather description here, but like the town uh, is very vague. Like there's no, there's no people like sleepers awakened is, you know, very general. It's like, every sleeper awakened you know uh um like there's something very gauzy i guess about like my uh image of the town and i don't know if that's like i don't know if that's effective insofar as it lets the reader imagine their own town or if it's just like holding off something uh you know uh,
1: yeah there's there's not even really signifiers of like types of people or a type of town like you don't get anything that tells you even, like, class of the neighborhood you're looking at, density,
2: anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, you know, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that you see with this um, is we sort of lose, because the language is so vague, we lose the facts of what happened. Like, we haven't even noticed that the storm is uh, stronger Than any storm they've had in fifty years, and does remarkable that producing more devastation in the four or five minutes it lasted than a half century of ordinary phenomena. And then a few seconds later, the hail shatters every window and brings this hailstorm inside. So these people have basically like had its like town completely devastated by a weather event that the writing's so vague about. We don't really uh, notice. Yeah that
1: that's exactly it like there were moments again going back to like first impressions where i was like pulled into it but just sort of immediately eased back out by the fact that like consequence was implied but never actually described or enumerated
2: yeah no exactly
0: yeah yeah like that not 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 a great uh comparison but i'm reminded of a book that i very much enjoy where uh at one point, someone like pulls out the same chair twice without ever pushing it in, and it's just like one of those little like those little things that everyone has in their writing that like hopefully a successive series of uh, editing passes would catch. Where here, like I definitely get the impression that like there was no particular uh, editing process um, that things were just written uh, and rushed to print. Uh, yeah, I think that sounds about right. Yeah, part of that effect is that like things happen like like Vin, like you were saying, like it's very tone forward. Like mm-hmm. as long as you kind of get the sense of like devastation and, uh, uh, oncoming horror, uh, that that's enough.
1: Yeah. In a sense, there's not even like in terms of broad strokes, there's not a need for detail or consequence on this page because and we know that it's just setting up for the actual main event and what it needs to set up is that tone and that feeling of unreality that's going to have to accompany a vampire. So in, in that sense, it does its job. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't do it in a, in an intensely compelling fashion. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Like it's, it's interesting. I, I, I can imagine uh, uh, if I were to write something in this vein, yeah, no, mm-hmm. no pun intended, <laughs> uh, or if this were given to me, I would like, I feel like the, the, the classic contemporary solution would, would, would be to say, like, have one scene, like, have a, have a cat, have a person, have, like, one definite human figure for whom the storm affects uh, them, and, like, let's just follow them. That's, like, the, the cold open of, like, let's see the vampire kill one person, mm-hmm. you know, before, like, the investigator comes on screen. Fashion?
2: Uh, you mean this kind of writing yeah no but i think we get this kind of writing today it's just um internal psychology instead of uh. external uh weather and landscape you know mm-hmm. um i mean but but I, I you see this in in writing like um you i can certainly think of i can't you know bring an actual example to mind, but you know uh her heart pounded in her throat as her skin flushed she had never been kissed like this but you know that kind of overheated hothouse prose but now it's about psychology mm. mm-hmm. um you get this kind of writing a lot in um in serial killer books that uh do the serial killers point of view um you know that kind of uh um You get some of it in um, like Thomas Harris's Red Dragon and the Francis Doloride chapters or in something like um, uh, Joyce Carol Oates's Zombie, where it's like, you know, this sort of almost uh, stream of consciousness blather from a serial killer because you're supposed to be inside their crazy mind.
0: (laughs) Right, right, right. Which, like, I I guess we could trace back to, um, oh gosh, what is uh, the, is it Dostoevsky's... uh, Notes from the Underground. Notes from the Underground. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mm. That's, yeah. I just always, you know, like, I remember uh, at one point, uh, you know, a friend pointed out that, like, the classic Dostoevsky is some guy, you know, for 20 pages saying, I'm not going to do this thing. And then, like, he just does it, uh, (laughs) which is, like, also, I think, a a trope in a lot of serial killer fiction. Um, Yeah. And I I think other people uh, who know more could talk about the overlap between serial killers and vampires in contemporary culture. But, uh you know yeah but it is uh,
1: it is that trick of of pacing and tone and tr- and trying to balance mood setting with action and suspense with follow through which is you know even for the best writers it's something that has to be thought about but is also just botched very frequently
2: <laughs> right well i mean there's a difference between writing to Uh, express dialogue or action, and then writing to express some kind of internal state or external state, some kind of emotional state, you know. And I think this is trying to do the emotional state. Um, On the opposite end of that spectrum, you would have like Brett Easton Ellis' American Psycho, where, you know, a long sort of deadpan, excruciatingly detailed description of what people are wearing at dinner or chopping up one of his victims. Um, you're not actually supposed to really be interested in that as a scene setting or or an actual action. It's supposed to like, oh, yeah, like we're just numb and all into labels, or look how numb he is. He's just so alienated from this horrendous act. Um, you know, it's 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 emotional. It's a writing to express an emotional state.
0: It's hmm. so interesting just to, to see the... Uh The tendrils of the gothic Mm. kind of going all through uh certain works of culture yeah or possibly all all of culture uh Hmm.
2: yeah well it's an interesting thing where at some point at some point it became scarier to hear about emotions being underplayed rather than overplayed Mm. and i think through the 19th century at least you know the louder the emotion the more interesting it was And then I think at some point in the middle of the 20th century, it became uh, more interesting to hear it underplayed. I mean, the stuff that comes to mind, and I know people were doing it beforehand, I'm just thinking of genre, but like Dorothy Hughes in a Lonely Place from, I think, 1949, you know, which is her first-person serial killer novel, which was sort of one of the first to do that. I think the first to do that. Um, But where... You don't even realize the guys, the narrator's murdering women until much into the book because it, the emotions are so underplayed. And then Jim Thompson would do that a few years later with the Killer Inside of Me. Um, but at some point between 1845 and 1949, the quieter an emotion was, the more dangerous it seemed.
0: Mm-hmm. At some
2: point, that changed.
0: <laughs> hmm. It's funny, also, just hearing you say that because I I, I know. Uh, very little bit uh about like the the parallel in acting where like, you know, the one of the top uh Shakespeare performers from the 19th century, you know, who was lauded for his like realism. Mm-hmm. And like there are descriptions of him where he's like like, you know, like biting his knuckles furiously and like spinning right. in place. And it's just like and it's funny now, you know, where people uh, you know, will say that what's really compelling isn't seeing someone cry on camera, but like seeing them try to hold in their tears yeah you know like
2: well yeah i mean it was sort of that that arrival of subtext right and performance i mean you you look at the realism you know like odette's and and kind of eugene o'neill um and you certainly look at directors and things like david belasco and stuff who like wanted sets that were extremely realistic with the kitchen sink on stage and all that. And I feel like that's a real thing of the 20s and 30s, maybe. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's when it started. But then you look at, you know, the literary modernism, right? Which is what? The 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 teens and the 20s, really? And it kind of makes sense for that to accompany the transition in popular
1: culture from stage to film. Mm-hmm. Uh, since essentially we can do close-ups now so we can study and, like, see the internal workings on someone's face in a much more direct way, uh, as opposed to having to essentially play for the cheap seats, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and also from from silence to sound, right? Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't need intercards to say, like, she was distraught, uh, or, like, a, sh- a short uh, tweet uh, of how someone is feeling. Yeah. Or what's going on. Well,
2: and I think literary modernism, right? I mean, you know, Wolf and Joyce and all those guys, this idea that you know, a character's internal state was as interesting, if not more so than their external state. Um, you know, you really saw that coming into into um, high literature, if not sort of everyday, you know, reading.
0: I mean, this also just makes me... Uh, one of the problems I've discovered with this podcast is that although mm-hmm. we read the first page of things, I'm always uh, wanting to read more or somewhat related. But like, if if the Varney style is... Here is the external world. Um, I'm curious to go back to uh, Dracula, where if I recall, like, well, actually, no, I I don't recall at all how much psychology there is in Dracula. I think there's some. There's at least a psychologist.
1: Yeah, Uh, but Dracula is also epistolary. So it's you're always hearing the voice of a specific person.
0: mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, it's Um, very it's a very interior book,
0: mm -hmm. which, of course, is also what, what we're missing here, like the fact that this is no one's point of view. It is just, yeah. and it won't be.
2: I mean, the closest <laughs> this book gets to having a point of view character is Varney, mm. because he's really the only character who makes it all the way to the end. But you know, it's the same. It's the same issue as you have in any kind of serial fiction, right? Having a consistent point of view is really, really difficult. It, it's you know, it's many hands shape the narrative, and so it's hard to have that kind of internal consistency.
0: Mm. Hmm. Well, uh, I think we've we've uh we've talked about this page and also a lot of things that this page brings up uh finn do you think this would be a good time to for for final thoughts we are pushing up against time aren't we (laughs) um i mean we could do another 20 minutes on like uh the the difference between the american gothic and the the english gothic Hmm. uh but but yeah uh so i guess yeah uh any any final thoughts on varney the vampire in this first page
2: oh i mean no go ahead oh no please no, I was just gonna say. You know, this first page tells you all you need to know. It's not very good, and that's sort of <laughs> indicative of all of Varney. Um, it's not a book I recommend reading, except for the accomplishment of saying you have. Um, it's it's extremely tedious, and and this page, first page, I, I would almost dare to say, uh, except for passages that are inadvertently kind of funny um, and and ridiculous and and strange. The writing doesn't really get this good again.
1: Hmm. Yeah, this is definitely one of those works where I think I would very happily engage in the modern tradition of reading the Wikipedia article or possibly the TV tropes. Because, like, I'm curious about, like, the sort of broad strokes and, like, you know, the details that jump out at people. But I don't I'm not curious enough to wade through and try and find those
0: things. (laughs) I feel like you, you could just read the chapter headings. So like, mm. okay, Midnight, Hailstorm, Dreadful Visitor, Vampire. Got it.
2: Yeah. I think that's what they're there for, right? Mm.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you which bits you want to read. Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, uh, Grady, where can the people find you?
2: Uh, oh, um, all my dumb stuff is over at Uh That's the best place. It's uh, my... My my social media platforms ooze out from there. It's got my event schedule, which I'm doing a ton of sort of live and virtual events all through the fall into November. Uh, For my new book, The Final Girl Support Group, I do a Welcome to the Final Girl Support Group show. Um, That's going to be all over the place. I'm doing it live in Philly on Saturday and then virtually with the Fantasia Film Festival on Sunday. Um, I've got tons of book reviews of old uh, horror paperbacks up on the site. And um, it shows you where you can buy my books if you want to have that kind of thing in your house. So GradyHendrix.com for all your needs of me.
1: Thanks for joining us on Dark and Stormy Nights. I've been your host, Vin LeBate, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at MrReciprocity. You can find the games that I write at MrReciprocity.itch.io. And you can find my other podcast, The Chimera, at thechimera.space or on Twitter at ChimeraPod or on your podcast app of choice.
0: And I've been your other host, Ben Blatberg. You can find me on Twitter at InCatastrophe. For show updates, follow Dark Nights Reads on Twitter or visit darknightsreads.com and we'll meet you back here next week. Weather permitting.